Last week we uh, started a series on uh, Gideon. So four uh, sermons about uh, the judge uh, named Gideon. And uh, so if you uh, weren't here last week, I'll try to summarize the entire sermon in one sentence here for you. So, so don't get used to this. Um, you still should come and listen to the whole sermon. Um, basically, last week we looked at a story where uh, God sent the angel of the Lord um, to convince Gideon that he was the one who was called to save Israel from the Midianites who had been oppressing the Israelites for seven years. That's basically what it was about last week. Okay. So that's what happened last week. And just keep that, that story or that context in mind. So we had the Midianites who were oppressing the Israelites for around seven years, and Gideon has been called by God through his angel to uh, deliver the Israelites out of the hand of the Midianites. Okay. And then this is Judges chapter 6, verses 25 to 40. That night, the Lord said to him, that is Gideon, Take your father's bull, the second bull, seven years old, and put, pull down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father, and cut down the sacred pole that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here in proper order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the sacred pole that you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the townspeople to do it by day, he did it by night. When the townspeople rose early in the morning, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the sacred pole beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this? After searching and inquiring, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. Then the townspeople said to Joash, Bring out your son, so that he may die, for he has pulled down the altar of Baal and cut down the sacred pole beside it. But Joash said to all who were arrayed against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you defend his cause? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been pulled down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerobaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he pulled down his altar. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and crossing the Jordan, they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. He sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, In order to see whether you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said, I am going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. 
Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me. Let me speak one more time. Let me please make trial with the fleece just once more. Let it be dry only on the fleece, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on all the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Loving and faithful God, we give you thanks for your word, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit we can gain insight and understanding into it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a, a few distinct sections in this uh, reading that uh, you've just heard, and I'm actually going to reread those sections as, uh, as we go through uh, and, and think about what this text may mean. Um, in its own time and also for us today. Uh, so I know this might be a bit repetitious, but I think it's helpful to sort of just hear these stories again, in particular because I know I'm not particularly familiar with the Gideon story. You may all be well-versed with Gideon and know everything about it, um, but my suspicion is you might be a little like me and are not in the habit of reading uh, much out of Judges chapter uh, 6 and 7 and 8. Um, so I'm going I'm to repeat some sections of, of what we heard. So here's kind of the first section, which is really uh, this section about tearing down and, uh, and tearing down these altars and then uh, replacing them with an altar to God and doing that at night. So we get this, this little bit here. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, the, set, the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the sacred pole that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here in proper order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the sacred pole that you shall cut down. And then Gideon does it, so it says that God, so God, uh, Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but he was too afraid of his family and the townspeople to do it by day, so he did it by night. So there's a few things in this text that we need to know about to kind of get a sense for where this story is going. First of all, um, Baal is a, a god that was worshipped um, by particular people, um, particularly the Amalekites and uh, Canaanites. So Baal was often, just means, the, the word Baal just simply means Lord. Um, so it's, it's really just a Canaanite word that means Lord. Um, but it's talking about a specific god that was worshipped in the region. And essentially what happened at this time, and it happens quite a bit throughout Israel's history, is the people of Israel stopped worshipping their own uh, one that they call the Lord, uh, Yahweh, and they have turned towards the, the gods of the country um, and are starting to basically worship the gods that their oppressors worship. And so they set up altars to Baal all over the place, and it talks about this sacred pole that is next to it. That's what's called an Asherah pole. And Asherah is a goddess that was thought to be uh, married to Baal. Okay, so together you would have the altar to Baal and the pole next to it that belongs to uh, his wife or sometimes considered his consort. Um, so that was kind of the, uh, the worship of the, of the, the people in, in the area where the Israelites were. And so we've got Baal and Asherah that are being worshipped by the people. And uh, God obviously is not too happy about uh, these kinds of things going on. Um, and he asks Gideon, in this case, to start 
his salvation of the people by tearing down the altar that's in his hometown. Um, there would have been altars like this all over the place. He says, start here, tear down this altar, replace it with uh, an altar to me, and do a proper sacrifice, a proper act of worship that is appropriate for your people, for who you really are. And essentially what I find interesting just about this action is that Gideon's first thing that God asks him to do is not go and fight the battle. But we're going to get to that next week. Um, he's going to go and fight this amazing battle. Um, but his first act is a sign of spiritual renewal. So it's not the, it's not the big program. It's not the, the action out there. It's actually you know, what we do here. It's an act of worship that God asks him to do first. It starts with the right worship of the right God. We've got to get the priorities in order. And now Gideon at this point in the story has no one with him other than his ten servants. And the implication there is he's just telling them what to do and they have to obey because they're his servants. So really he's got no one with him. And he does it at night because he's afraid of, who's he afraid of? He's afraid of his family. And he's afraid of the townspeople as well. So his family and everybody he's grown up with. And incidentally, the townspeople can also kind of be considered his family. Back then, everything was organized in tribes and clans. And so most of the town would have been part of his clan. They're pretty much considered his wider extended family. So he's afraid of his family. He's afraid of the townspeople. So he does it at night. Why does God really want Gideon to do this, other than it's a sign of spiritual renewal? Is it just that this is playing the right thing to do? Or perhaps might God be using this action as a test for Gideon, for him to grow in his faith, grow in his confidence and in his resolve for the kinds of things he's going to be asked to do next? And if that is what God is doing, we may ask the question of, well, how well did Gideon do on the test? Well, he did it, but he did it at night. So we're not sure. So that's the first section of our text. The second section is really about the townspeople and really Gideon's family uh, talking about the action of what Gideon's done. And it goes like this, so starting in verse 28. When the townspeople rose early in the morning, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the sacred pole beside it was cut down, and the, the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built there. So they said to one another, who has done this? And after searching and inquiring, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. Then the townspeople said to Joash, bring out your son, so that he may die, for he has pulled down the altar of Baal and cut down the sacred pole beside it. So Gideon hiding at night. Didn't really work too well for him, did it? Right? It didn't obviously it didn't take too much investigatory work to figure out that it was Gideon who had done this. And now they want to kill him for it. And we might seem, we might think that's really extreme, and it certainly is. But when we think about things that we hold truly sacred, if we see those things desecrated, we're pretty angry about those kinds of things. And that's what those people would have thought, right? Even though they're not necessarily supposed to be their gods, they're looking at this thinking. This is not right. He's torn down what we believe is sacred. And he now needs to die for that action. So that's, that's the, this section, but it continues with uh, Gideon's father, Joash. 
This is what Joash said to all who were arrayed against him. Will you contend for Baal? Or will you defend his cause? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by mortal. If he's a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been pulled down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jared Baal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he pulled down his altar. It's interesting what, what Gideon's father does here, right? Gideon was afraid of his family and what they might do or what they might say. And yet, what does his family do and say? His father defends him, right? He stands up for him. I mean, Joash has way more confidence than Gideon does. Gideon hides at night doing this, and yet Joash stands in front of his clan, his tribe, his townspeople, he defends Gideon to the ground. He defends God in doing it. And he says some interesting things. That He says this about Baal. He says, if he is a god, imagine saying that about God, our God. We, we, wouldn't, we would never use that kind of language. But he says it because they had idol worship and all of this kind of stuff. And there was questions in people's hearts about, well, is this even really a god? And he knows that. I don't think that Joash believed that Baal was, was really a god. He, he knew what was right. He knew who the true god was. And so he says, if he really is a god, then let him deal with Gideon. He should be able to take care of himself. You don't need to, you don't need to do anything to Gideon. Let Baal do it. But he also says something even more amazing. He says this, whoever contends for Baal will be put to death by morning. How does Joash know this? We have no clues in the text. I have no answer for that question. But it amazes me that Joash can be so bold to say, if you're, standing, if you're on Baal's side, you watch out. Tomorrow morning, everyone on Baal's side, they're going to be taken care of. He has a lot of confidence. And who's displaying faith here? It's Joash who's got faith in this story. Gideon was afraid of his family, but his father, Joash, is brave and confident and stands up for him. So that's section two. Section three is the summons to battle. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and crossing the Jordan, they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Um, so basically what you've got going on, where I, it's hard to picture Israelite, ancient Israelite geography, um, but basically, you've got the Amalekites who are coming up from the south, the Midianites who are basically the ones who are uh, kind of in Israel already, oppressing it, um, which is also an eastern power, but even more people from the east are coming, and they're all gathering together in the Valley of Jezreel, which is pretty much kind of in the center of, of the nation of Israel, sort of between the north and the south. Uh, Gideon and his, his clans and tribes, the ones that are about to be mentioned, are all in the north. And so it kind of looks like what's happening is you've got all of the ones who want to pretty much do away with anything to do with Israel, who are now maybe gathering for one last uh, fight, or one last oppression. Maybe there's some northern strongholds that are sort of holdouts, and, uh, and you're getting the, the east and the south and the middle all coming together in one place, and the implication seems to be they're going to go, really go after the north, which is where Gideon is. So 
definitely there's Midianite oppression in the north, but maybe they're now sort of getting help to, to really quash the Israelites. Uh, last week we talked about how they had dealt with that economically primarily. They, they'd done away with uh, farms and, and got rid of all that kind of stuff. So now maybe there's a military action that's about to take place. So they're all gathered in this valley. And we wonder maybe what are they about to do? And then we get this. But the Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet. And the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. He sent messengers throughout all Manasseh. And they too were called out to follow him. Now, Manasseh is Gideon's tribe. Um, it's actually what was considered a half-tribe in Israel. Um, so, Joseph's two sons. So, there's the 12 tribes of Israel, which are the 12 sons of Jacob, or sons of Israel. One of those sons is Joseph, and as soon as we hear that, we now suddenly have a story that we can relate to, because we know Joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat, right? Um, and so, his two sons were Manasseh and Ephraim, if you've heard Ephraim. Manasseh is considered one of the tribes of Israel, or a half-tribe, because there's, there's two between Joseph and Ephraim. So that's the, the tribe. And Gideon's clan is the Abiezrites within the tribe, because Abiezer, where that's derived, is a descendant from Manasseh. So I think he's the great-great-grandson of Joseph, is Abiezer. And then... Continuing down the line, you'll eventually find you know, Gideon belongs in that time. We don't have the lineage of Gideon, but you can sort of figure out where he's placed in there. And so what he does is he sounds the trumpet, and the Abiezrites, Gideon's clan, the people he was afraid of, are called out to follow him. And the rest of his tribe is called out, the whole region, basically, called out to follow him. And then it says he also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, all other tribes of Israel, or sons of Jacob. And they went up to meet them. It's a summons. It's a summons for battle that they're about to do next week in the next chapter. The last section of our reading is where Gideon uh, decides that he needs to test God's will. And what I think is really interesting about when this comes in the story is that the summons to battle is already happening. Everyone's gathered. You'd think the time to test it would be before you'd sounded the trumpet and, you know, but everyone's getting together. There's two military forces forming and at the, at the last minute he says, oh, we've got to make sure we're doing the right thing. Maybe that is a good idea, but you might have wanted to do that before you rallied all the troops. It's interesting to think about why Gideon did it that way. But here's the, here's the section from our reading, starting in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, In order to see whether you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said, I'm going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there's dew on the fleece alone, and it's dry everywhere else on the ground, then I shall know that you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you said. And then God does it exactly as David said. And it was so. He rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece and he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a hole with water. 
Great. We know it's the right thing. Good. Let's go. No. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me. Let me speak just one more time. Let me please make a trial with the fleece just once more. Let's just make sure. Here. Let it be dry. Let it be dry only on the fleece. So we had wet fleece before. Now, now we're just going to dry fleece. And on all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground, there was dew. Now let me ask you this about this uh, testing with the fleece. Is this a legitimate way to discern God's will? And I know of, uh, of Christians who will say absolutely. They're, they're probably not going out of literally doing the fleece thing, but they'll find some other test, you know. Um, so, you know, if there's a thunderstorm this afternoon, then I'm going to move to California. Oh, that might actually not be a test, but that just might be a, a thing that we're going to say. But, you know, if there's a thunderstorm this afternoon, then I know God wants me to uh, phone that person or, or whatever it is. I know people who actually do that and use those kinds of things as signs of this is the way of discerning God's will. Is it legitimate to do that kind of thing? Now, last week, this, you might, if you might remember, we talked about how it is, in fact, legitimate and wanted to slow down, to worship, and to pray, to discern God's voice or God's will before taking any action. That kind of happens in the first chapter with Gideon, where he's sort of forced to slow down and worship and pray to try to get a sense for, is this really the angel of the Lord talking to me? That, I would say, is absolutely legitimate, and that's kind of the point of the sermon last week, is to say we need to take time in prayer with God. Now, as our story uh, goes on, and we go from where we were last week to where we are this week, I think what seems to happen with Gideon is that he, he seems increasingly desperate to only do the basics of obeying God, while, while at the same time he's, he's kind of hoping that he's going to be let off the hook. And that seems to be more what Gideon is about here. So, Follow me with, the, with me on this. God tests Gideon's faith, and Gideon barely passes, right? He, he destroys the, the, the Baal altar and uh, destroys the pole, but he does it at night. So he barely passes. His dad is much better at, uh, at passing the, the test of faith. So that happens. And then Gideon, he tests God, doesn't he? And he does it twice. Are we supposed to test God? I don't know. And the thing about Gideon is he actually devises a test, and I think devises this test on purpose to try to set it up to fail. I mean, it's a crazy test, isn't it? Right? Uh, let's have no dew in the morning on the grass and have it all come on to fleece. Yeah, that's not going to happen. And then I'll be able to say, well, God, you didn't do that, so you're clearly not, uh, you're clearly not making me uh, go and uh, lead the people of Israel. So if you don't give me the miracle, then, then, I, then I'm off the hook. And he, he sets it up as though, as though he wants it to be. And now, I know he says, this is how I will know that you will deliver Israel by my hand. 
doubting. And he's been doubting all along. But it's amazing at this stage that Gideon means something like this to, to actually discern. I think he's just trying to get out of it. Because at this stage, God has sent an angel, and that angel made fire come out of a rock. Gideon has managed to survive even when the townspeople discovered that it was him who tore down Baal's altar. He heard his, I certainly heard about his father standing up for him. God's spirit took possession of Gideon and used him to summon an army. And it's at this stage that Gideon says, well, I need to find out for sure. I think Gideon, from the very beginning, is, is hoping for a certain answer from God. I think he's hoping that that, that answer is going to be silenced from God. He's hoping to stop hearing about his call. He's hoping that he will not have to be the one who is going to save his people. And we might think, well, Gideon's done some great things. He's gone and rallied the troops, and he's done all of that. And I want you to take note that it's really clear that it says God's spirit took possession of Gideon, and then he sounded the trumpet, and he did this. He's possessed when he's doing that. By a good spirit, not possessed in the evil sense that we might think of that word, but he's possessed by the Holy Spirit who drives him to gather the troops. It's actually not Gideon who's doing it. I think he agrees with it, but... Everything in our story so far has been God pushing Gideon trying to say, no, 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 no. And this is his final plea to try to get out of what God wants him to do. The story of the fleece, in my view, is actually not teaching us a helpful way to discern. Gideon used the fleece when he was desperate to, to stop hearing from God. It comes in a story where Gideon really wants to run away or do nothing or to not be chosen for the task that God's given him. So what is the application of this story? Well, first of all, I'd like to say sometimes we're way too quick to try to force an application of the story. And that might be what we do with this fleece story sometimes. The second thing is when the application to human life is not evident with a biblical story, or when we have two completely different applications, which in this case would be don't use a fleece and do use a fleece, go ahead and do it, then maybe what we need to do is look at how we're reading the text and wonder whether we're reading this text in helpful ways at all. Or maybe we're asking the question to which the text has no answer. Is this a legitimate discernment tool? Is the question? And my opinion would be, not really. <coughs> On the other hand, I know Christians who used these methods and they've used them at desperate and not so desperate times, and they've had answers from God that have led to positive outcomes in their lives. But perhaps whether or not we should use this as a method of discernment isn't the point of this text. When I get a text like this, my inclination is to make the text about Gideon, 
and then try to figure out how I relate to Gideon, and then apply it to my life. And the danger is this, in this, is that maybe I don't relate to Gideon at all. And it's funny that we do this a lot with biblical texts, as we read them and then we think, well, can I relate to that character? And it's either yes, and then we apply it to our lives, or it's no, and we ignore that text. It's strange that we do that with the Bible. But we like to find the human characters and see what happens to them, and then can we relate to them or not? And in the end, if we're facing a major decision in our lives, we might find the story of the fleece helpful, but we also might find it really unhelpful. It might be relatable, but it might not be applicable. What we tend not to do, and this is the strange thing for Christians to not do this so much, we tend not to look for God in the text. We're instead searching for Gideon and our application. And if we look at God in this text, we will find a God who is a God who is exceptionally patient with Gideon. Think about it. He, he sends an angel to tell him that he's, that, that he's being called to save the people of Israel from the Midianites. Gideon objects immediately to what the angel says and doesn't even realize at the time that it's an angel. And, and until the angel makes fire come out of a rock, and then he realizes, oh my goodness. Then God tells Gideon, tear down the altar to Baal. We're going to have spiritual renewal, and then, it, then it's going to be on to free the Israelites. And Gideon does it, but he tries to cover it up, but it's him who's done it at night. Does Gideon then go and summon all the troops to, to mount the, the force that's going to go up against the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the East? Well, kind of. The Spirit of the Lord takes possession of Gideon and it kind of pushes him to go and do it. That's when the sounding of the trumpet and the sending out of the messages happens. He, he kind of does it. And now everyone actually does gather. He has this fighting force, and you would think that Gideon would then be ready to lead as God told him he will. And what does he do? He says, Well, I've got this fleece. I'm going to lay this out on the ground. And God, you know, if you could just make the dew come on the fleece and not the ground, then I'll believe you. So God then does it. And he says, Well, you know, don't be mad at me, but I'm going to do it again. And this time, keep no dew on the fleece. Like, everything Gideon does. That, to me, if I was God, I would just be like, enough with you. Let's just call somebody else. But over and over and over again, God is patient with Gideon. If anything, this story illustrates that by and large, our faith is weak and it needs help to grow. And God is infinitely patient with us. Was Gideon testing God's will with the fleece, or was he testing God's patience? And so think this morning. Are there areas of your life where you are testing God's patience? And then think about how is God being patient with he is. Because he loves you and cares about you. What are you learning from God's patience? 
prayer.